Have you ever seen your life and not seen what God was doing in your life? When I was in maybe first or second grade, I remember uh, being at my grandmother's house and watching this home video that had been made of me when I was just a little guy. And uh, my parents had been divorced when, before I could remember. Um, and so I always grew up with two homes and I would go back and forth between mom and dad's. And I remember watching these home videos and seeing my parents interact and just, I could see my life, literally. And I remember just being confused about why divorce was part of my life. And I remember getting sad about that, asking my grandmother why, and she didn't have an answer, and nobody has an answer, and I still don't have an answer for, for why that's a thing. And I can certainly see some good that's come from the circumstances. I mean, I've got some stepbrothers now that I would not have otherwise. I've got some step-parents that I would not have otherwise, and that's been a blessing. So it's certainly been used for good in my life. There's certainly good that's come from it, and yet there's also a lot of unexplained pain that has come from it. And even though I could see my life, I couldn't see what God was doing. And isn't that how life is? So many times in our own lives. You can see the events that are unfolding. You can see the good and the bad. You can see the triumphs and the tragedies. But you don't know why. Isn't one of the most difficult things about walking with God the fact that most of the time you don't see what he's doing? Maybe you're pleading with him to give you wisdom. You just want to have wisdom. You want clarity on a big life decision. Have you ever been there before? And God is very quiet. Maybe you're pleading with God to give you this desire of your heart. And you've been pleading for a while. And God is very quiet. Maybe you're screaming at God, just broken by the circumstances that are unfolding and God is quiet. Maybe you're even just humbly asking God to lift your spirit and he's quiet. How do you follow God when you don't see what he's doing? How do you follow God when he seems to be completely uninterested in the events of your life. That's what the story of Ruth is about. Today, we're starting a new series called When You Don't See. When You Don't See. We're gonna look at the story of Ruth, and I think that one of the reasons that the Holy Spirit inspired the writer of Ruth to give us this book is because many times in our lives, we won't see. And this book is designed to help you know something about God 
and to help you know something about how you should respond to God when you don't see what he's doing. This is a story about God's faithfulness behind the scenes. This is a story about God's mysterious providence at work in ordinary lives in obscurity. And this is a story about God's power to redeem brokenness and bitterness through his son, Jesus. How do you follow God when there are no dreams, no visions, and no miracles? And what is God doing when you don't see him doing anything? That's what this story is about. So if you have a Bible, Ruth chapter one is where we're gonna be today. There's a few different ways to approach this book. Uh, We could go ahead and spoil the ending and then work backwards and just learn. What we've decided to do is walk through it chapter by chapter. And so we're not gonna spoil the ending today. Those of you who are familiar with the book already know the ending, but I want you to pretend that you're reading this for the first time. I want you to feel the tension of this story. We get introduced to the setting of this story in verse one. This tells us the time and the place. It says, during the time of the judges, there was a famine in the land. The land referring to the promised land. And it says it was in the the time of the judges. So it happens at some point, this story is like a little excerpt from something somewhere in the book of Judges. In the book of Judges, the period of the Judges, if you're unfamiliar, was a period where there was no king in Israel. The Israelites, God's people, had been rescued out of slavery in Egypt and they eventually wandered into the land that God was giving them. And through Joshua, they settled the land, they divided the land, and then there was no king. And the period of the judges was a period of wars and famine, corruption. There was no king and everyone, it says, this is in the last verse of the book of Judges. If you just flip the page backwards, you'll see this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did whatever seemed right to him. That's the period of the judges. Everybody's, they're just doing whatever they think is right. And that's causing lots of pain for lots of different people. And so there's this cycle that is developed. People would sin, they would get judged for that sin, they would get overtaken by some other nation and then they would cry out to God and God would miraculously raise up a judge to come and save them. And then after they were saved, they would do the same thing again. And so that happens again and again and again in this cyclical pattern. And that's when this story takes place. So it was in the time of the judges. So there's no king and there was a famine. And we cannot really imagine that where we live. But around the world, this is still something that people deal with. Imagine the fear of 
The way that you get food is through crops and now there's a famine and the animals die and the ground seems dead. What are you gonna do? Imagine the fear. That's the setting for this story. And so a man left Bethlehem in Judah with his wife and two sons to stay in the territory of Moab for a while. So this man who's living in this period leaves Bethlehem. Do you know what Bethlehem means? It means house of bread. Isn't there some irony in that? We live in the house of bread, there's no bread. And so what are we gonna do? This man decides to move with his wife and sons to Moab. You know anything about Moab? Moab was an enemy of the nation of Israel. The way that the Moabites were started, the way that they're, literally their nation began was this man named Lot. His daughter tricked him, got him drunk, and slept with him so that she could have a son. That's how the Moabites got married. Their son's name was Moab. So this family, this nation, the Moabites, are known for being sinful, sexually immoral, promiscuous. And that continued throughout Israel's history. While they were wandering in the wilderness in the book of Numbers, the Moabites wouldn't let them pass through the land. They wouldn't let them set up shop in their territory for a little while. And instead, they hired someone to curse the Israelites. And then they had some of their women become prostitutes and go and cause unfaithfulness throughout the Israelite nation so that men began to cheat on their wives with Moabite women. And so when an Israelite, especially in this period, because they're not that far removed from those events, when an Israelite in this period hears about Moab, it's the worst place you could possibly imagine. And that's where this man decides to take his family during the famine. The man's name, verse two, was Elimelech. The name Elimelech means my God is king. So in a period when there was no king in Israel, Elimelech's name is supposed to remind him and others that my God is king. And he believed that so passionately that he decided to leave the land God had promised to give them and provide for them in and abandon that land to go to Moab. Here's a guy who's really living up to his name. His wife's name was Naomi. Naomi means pleasant, beautiful. This is a woman who did live up to her name. She was known for being pleasant, charming, beautiful, easy to be around, helpful, gracious, kind. And now she gets taken to a place she didn't grow up dreaming about moving. She goes with him, and the names of 
their sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They entered the fields of Moab and settled there. So this little family moves from Bethlehem, the house of bread, to Moab. And then tragedy strikes. Verse three, Naomi's husband, Elimelech, died and she was left with her two sons. Verse four, her sons took Moabite women as their wives. One was named Orpah and the second was named Ruth. After they lived in Moab about 10 years, both Malon and Kilion also died and Naomi was left without her two children and without her husband. So do you see the tragedy that Naomi is experiencing? The author is intentionally being very just staccato, giving a list of one tragedy after another continues to happen. We don't know the time frame, but she gets taken to a place she doesn't want to be. Nobody wanted to be in Moab. Her husband dies. Her boys grow up and marry Moabite women. And she had not dreamt of living in Moab and having Moabite daughters-in-law. She didn't grow up hoping for that. And then she loses her boys. So she's away from home She's left with nothing except for these two Moabite women. Great. Have you ever been there? Have you ever faced disappointment after disappointment after disappointment? Have you experienced that through the loss of a loved one that was followed by the loss of another loved one? Have you had the inability to obtain something that you desperately want? Have you experienced this professionally, whether it was through unemployment or getting passed over for a promotion or not accomplishing what you thought you would by now? And it's like over and over and over, life is not turning out for you the way you would have hoped. Have you been there? Changes keep happening that are outside of your control. We've all been there. Naomi is heartbroken, she's depressed, and she's bitter. But she hears something that gives her just a little bit of hope. Verse six. She and her daughters-in-law set out to return from the territory of Moab because she had heard in Moab that the Lord had paid attention to his people's need by providing them food. So she hears that the Lord has at least met someone's need by providing back home. And so she decides, you know what? We're going back. And so... Verse seven, she left the place where she had been living, accompanied by her two daughters-in-law 
and traveled along the road leading back to the land of Judah. Verse 8, Naomi said to them, Each of you go back to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to the dead and to me. May the Lord grant each of you rest in the house of a new husband. She kissed them and they wept loudly. She loves them, but she wants to be alone. She wants to do this on her own. She tells them, go back home. Go back to your mom's house and maybe you'll find a new husband. He'll be able to provide for you. Because in this culture, for a woman to be left alone with no husband, no son, was dangerous. So she recognizes, look, there's nothing for you if you come with me. Go back home. Verse 10, they said to her, we insist on returning with you to your people. But now Naomi's gonna talk him out of it. Verse 11, but Naomi replied, return home, my daughters. Why do you wanna go with me? Am I able to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. Go on, for I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me to have a husband tonight and to bear sons, would you be willing to wait for them to grow up? Would you restrain yourselves from remarrying? No, my daughters. My life is much too bitter for you to share because the Lord's hand has turned against me. You see what she's saying? She says, I can't have any more sons. Even if I did have sons, you wouldn't wait to marry them. If you come with me, you'll become bitter and old, just like me. See, in this moment, she also lets us in on something else that she's feeling discouraged about, and that's just her age. She's reached a point in life where it's hard to imagine that the days ahead of her could be better than the days that are behind her. And so she describes herself as bitter. And so she says, don't come with me. You don't wanna be like me. I've got nothing. And if you come with me, that'll be your life too. So verse 14, again, they wept loudly and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth clung to her. Naomi said, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Follow your sister-in-law. Get out of here. Go home. But Ruth replied, Don't plead with me to abandon you or to return and not follow you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me and do so severely if anything but death separates you and me. Some of you had that read at your wedding maybe. And you were reading it to your spouse. 
She's saying it to her in-law. <laughs> Where you go, I'll go. Where you die, I'll die. I'm clinging to you, she says. Here in the midst of, of Naomi's darkness and bitterness, there's a friend who clings to her. And so when Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, <laughs> she stopped talking to her. <laughs> Get off my lawn is how Naomi feels at this point, all right? And so she's just like, all right, well, just grab your stuff and let's go then. And they returned to the land. Verse 19, the two of them traveled until they came to Bethlehem. When they entered Bethlehem, the whole town was excited about their arrival and the local women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Is she back? And she says, verse 20, don't call me Naomi. Remember what Naomi means? Pleasant. Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. She answered, for the Almighty has made me very bitter. Mara means bitter. She says, don't call me pleasant, call me bitter. For the Almighty, God is the one, God is the one who's done this. Verse 21, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has opposed me and the Almighty has afflicted me. Do I look pleasant to you, she says? Call me bitter, please. Let's at least be honest about what you see, she says. And they didn't know how to respond to that, I'm sure. And then verse 22 ends with just a little glimmer of hope. So Naomi came back from the territory of Moab with her daughter-in-law, Ruth, the Moabites. They arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now notice the little summary here. Why does it need to tell us again that Ruth is a Moabites? because that's how everybody else saw her. Notice when they greet Naomi, they're excited to see her. Who do you have with you? That's who Naomi gets to, yeah. That's my lot in life, guys. See why I'm bitter? Here's what the Lord has left me with. I left with a husband and sons, and now I'm back with Ruth. Thank you. <laughs> but, what started in verse one with a famine ends in verse 22 with a harvest. There's a little glimmer of hope here that maybe something will happen. What's gonna happen to Naomi and Ruth, the Moabites? What's gonna happen? That's the invitation is to come 
and read the story. Come hear the story next week for part two. But let's talk about what we might be able to learn from chapter one. See, the story of Ruth is going to be about how Naomi's tragic situation has set the stage for God to display his mysterious providence. What's going to happen to them? Just like you may not know, they don't know. And isn't that the tension we live in? We experience these things. How is it going to turn out? Is God going to turn things into something beautiful? Tune in next time. I mean, that's how we have to live our lives, right? You don't know the future. You don't know how God's going to do things. Neither did they. God mysteriously turns tragedy into triumph for his people. God mysteriously turns tragedy into triumph for his people. But most of the time, you do not see it while it's happening. Most of the time, it feels like God is doing nothing. He's silent. He's absent. He's opposed to me. And that's the story of Ruth. How does God work to turn tragedy into triumph for his people? That's the story of Ruth. Today, I just want to focus on this question because we don't see how all that's gonna unfold yet. Just like them, we don't know. Here's the question I want us to consider today. So what should you do when you don't see? How do you follow God when you don't see what he's doing? How do you follow God when you don't see what he's doing? I wanna share three quick things with you. First, admit what you're feeling. How do you follow when you can't see what God's doing? First, admit what you're feeling. Naomi is honest and changes her name. Don't call me Naomi, I'm bitter. To follow God, you don't have to pretend. You don't have to put on a pretty face to show up for God or his people. And maybe there's freedom just in that that you need to hear today. Are you angry with God? Are you in despair? Do you wish that God would change his mind about something? Are you tired of waiting for something? Are you embarrassed or ashamed of something? To follow God, you do not have to lie, pretend, or fake it. You can be honest. God can handle your honesty. We want to be a church that can handle your honesty too. We want to be a church 
that doesn't force people into pretending for the sake of, okay, well, Christians are supposed to have it together. And so when we go to church, just smile. And maybe you've even told yourself that in the car before, just smile. Don't let anybody know. If they knew, I wouldn't be accepted. We wanna be a church where you can ask questions, where you can express doubts, where you can be honest about your sin and your shame. Why? Because we have a God who lets us be honest. Admit what you're feeling when you don't see what God is doing. Number two, allow people in. Allow people in. Naomi was reluctant to let Ruth come along. We don't know all the reasons why, but eventually she caved. When Naomi returned to Bethlehem, she let her friends in on what was going on in her life. We don't know what that conversation looked like, but we just know that she told them, I'm bitter. That's not someone who's, who's living in isolation. Instead, she's letting people in. There's a woman in our church who shared her story recently uh, with me and some others. And her story is that she grew up in an abusive home. And for years, she was abused by family members and people who were close family friends. And for years, she kept it buried. It turned her into a bitter woman. After 20 years of marriage, living like this, eventually she decided to listen to her husband and some close friends and get help. And after I heard her story, I asked her to read Ruth chapter one and just give me some thoughts that she had. And she said this, Having heard that the Lord had visited his people while she was in Moab, Naomi decided to give life another chance by going back. Her friends hardly recognized her because, she, because the previously happy, contented Naomi now had a face that reflected a hard, bitter woman. Admitting her bitterness to her friends may have been the beginning of cleansing for her soul. I don't know what that conversation was like, but I'm convinced it was a turning point. This woman who's experienced the healing that can take place when you let people in, reads this story and goes, you know what? That's what Naomi was doing. She was beginning the hard journey of letting people walk with her in her brokenness. And like Naomi, you may resist letting people in as well. There may be some Ruths in your life that you also have told to go home. Recently, I heard a story about a man in our church 
He was a young man who had anger issues that were causing trouble in his marriage. He was afraid to be honest or let people in until finally he came to a men's group, one of our men's groups here at Highlands. He expressed what he was dealing with and the group wasn't sure that they could help him, but they knew someone who might be able to. And so they introduced him to another man in our church who has a similar history. This is a man who's older and wiser. He's just got a lot more life experience. And so this young man started meeting with this older man and talking about things and being honest about what he was dealing with. And this older man begins to disciple him. And over two years, he started coming to this men's group. He started growing. And then recently, their family moved out of state. And before he moved, he sent a little note that says this. Gentlemen, I wanted to thank you all for sharing your wisdom and kindness over the years with me. Highlands Men has helped mold me into a better husband and father in just two short years. I could not have done it without your continued support. Please continue to pray for me and my family as we relocate. He goes on to say other things. Here's a man who realized this thing that he was dealing with, he should not walk with it alone. He doesn't need to carry it alone. Instead, a step towards healing is allowing other people in. What would it look like for you to take a step to open the door of your life and allow people in? What would that look like? Maybe you need to join a group. Maybe that's the next step. We've got grief share groups. We've got divorce care groups. We've got men's groups and women's groups. We've also just got what we call community groups. Maybe that's a step that you could take to let people in. Maybe because of what you're walking through, you should seek professional counseling. If you're looking for a good Christian counselor, you can contact the church this week and we would love to connect you with someone. Maybe allowing people in means texting a few close friends this afternoon with details and you just ask them to pray for you. You don't wanna live in the dark anymore. You want to, to allow people in to what you're feeling. Maybe it looks like calling someone and asking them to meet regularly with you and giving them some specific things that you need to be able to talk about with them. I don't know what that might look like for you, but here's what I know, that this is who the church is. We are not just a gathering. We do not just gather for worship, even though we do that. But we also commit to community here. And this is what community looks like. It looks like bearing one another's burdens, walking with one another through hard things. That's what the church is. And that's who we wanna be. So admit what you're feeling, allow people in. And three, approach God over and over and over and over and over. Naomi returned to the land. She's giving life another chance. 
And Naomi never stopped walking with God. She makes seven different statements or things that she thinks about God. In verse six, she says, the Lord paid attention to his people's need. In verses eight and nine, she says, the Lord is able to show kindness to you, Orpah and Ruth, so go home. She says, God has turned against her, in verse 13. She says, the Almighty, that's what she calls God, the Almighty has made her very bitter, in verse 20. She says that God has brought her back empty, verse 21. She says that the Lord has opposed me, verse 21. She says that the Lord has afflicted me, verse 21. What does she believe about God? She believes that God is almighty. He's great. He's powerful. She believes that. Even while she's walking through this, she believes that God is the almighty God. She also believes that God is good. His character wants to show kindness. He is able and willing to show kindness. Because when she hears that the famine has stopped in the land, she concludes God is being kind. And she says to Orpah and Ruth, look, God will be kind to you. She believes that. She believes God is good. She also believed that God was against her. She also believed God was against her. I don't know all the reasons that she maybe felt that. Obviously, we can speculate pretty well. But notice that she, in spite of everything she's feeling and everything she believes about God, she does not abandon God. She's angry, maybe. She's confused. She's frustrated. She feels neglected. She feels opposed by God even. But she is not abandoning God. She's wrestling with him. She is in the fight with her God. And sometimes that's what maturity looks like, is refusing to leave the fight. It's almost as if there's a little nugget of truth in her about how to relate with God, a little nugget of truth that will eventually get passed on to the author who writes. My God, my God. This is Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far from my deliverance and from my words of groaning? My God, I cry by day, but you do not answer by night, yet I have no rest. But you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Our ancestors trusted in you. They trusted and you rescued them. They cried to you and were set free. They trusted in you and were not disgraced. Psalm 22 is written by a man who has inherited a belief that sometimes the key to walking with God is choosing to stay in the fight. to refuse to abandon faith. 
And this little nugget of truth gets passed into a family who will bring the ultimate sufferer into the world. Listen to Hebrews chapter four, verses 14 through 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast to our confession For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach. That's where I got the word. Let us approach the throne of grace with boldness. Let us approach God with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Why should you approach a God over and over and over who's quiet? Why should you approach a God over and over and over who you can't see and who you don't see working? Why should you do that? Because you have a great high priest who has approached him ahead of you. He knows what it's like for the world to go dark. He knows what it's like to plead and get no response. He knows what it's like to have a cup in his hand, a drink of despair, to plead that this cup would pass from me and for it to not pass. You have a savior named Jesus who knows the path of following God when you don't see. And because he walked that path and went to the cross and died in the place of sinners like you and me, we can boldly approach the throne where one day the tragedy will be turned into triumph. Let me pray for you. Father, God, I ask that your spirit would be active now. Would you give us permission to be honest? Would you give us courage to let people in? And God, would you give us relentless faith to stay in the fight? that you would give wisdom to know what to do with what we've heard today and encourage to do it. It's in Jesus' name that I ask, amen. Would you stand with us?